You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast brought to you by KevKayat.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit KevKayat.com. Now, here is the host of Nonprofit Problem Solver, Kev Kayat. Hey, Kev Kayat here. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks for tuning in. You are actually the Nonprofit Problem Solver. My job is to bring you practical, tactical expertise that you can use right now or in about an hour. You're about to hear the recording of me chatting one-to-one with an expert. You're more than welcome to join the next live call. Just zip on over to nonprofitproblemsolver.com to register. Today we open the summer series of Nonprofit Problem Solver, which replaces the expert panels from season one with deeper conversations one-to-one between myself and a single guest. For episode one, I'm joined by Dr. William Clark, an experienced nonprofit leader, author, pastor, and podcaster working in Hartford, Connecticut. Our question today is, how much should fundraising cost? Okay, welcome everyone. Welcome to the summer series of Nonprofit Problem Solver. Uh, we've replaced the expert panels with uh, one-to-one interviews, and we're going to still d- uh, dive deeply with uh, nonprofit experts and address uh, a range of practical and tactical items to uh, help you drive your your mission and your impact. Uh, I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. William Clark, who's a uh, a fundraising expert, uh, a, um, a strategist, an author, a pastor, uh, and uh, a, a, a uh, someone with several years' experience in nonprofits uh, and founder of the Change Makers Forum. So, welcome, Dr. Clark. Hey, Kev. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. Tell me a little bit about the Change Makers Forum. Yeah. So, I moved to Connecticut about. Five years ago from Philadelphia, which is where I was born and raised. Um, and when we got to Connecticut, I, I saw that there was a leadership gap in the nonprofit arena. And I saw that there were a whole lot of people who wanted to jump in and do a lot of good work, but just didn't have the leadership skills to make it happen. Uh, so within six months of uh, moving here, launched a change Makers forum. It was originally called the Emerging Leaders Conference. And uh, it was for people emerging into their own leadership within a nonprofit space. Five years later, uh, we renamed it to the Changemakers Forum, and it's been a growing conference here in the local Hartford area. We were set to host it this past May, which is our usual time. And of course, (laughs) given everything that has uh, gone on uh, with this pandemic, that got canceled. However, we have yet to reschedule it. But I think, you know, it's provided me with some thoughts around how do we do this on a broader scale? Because it's been a local conference for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And so the idea uh, at this point is to possibly do it around the country and we'll see what happens. 
So like uh, everyone else trying to pivot and understand how best to do an event uh, in, in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's been the move on a number of fronts for us, uh, but including the, the, the uh, change reform. Yeah, definitely. So uh, 2020 still um, hasn't been too disruptive to your writing, though, I assume. Have you got any uh, writing that's up and coming, things that you're working on that you can share? Yeah, so I have a book chapter coming out uh, that's focused on uh, how to help returning citizens reintegrate into our communities. And for people who are watching this, this is uh, part of the, the nonprofit work that I do, working with returning citizens. Uh, helping them with job development skills, as well as helping them find and maintain employment. So I write about just one uh, a process and a pathway where we can help them kind of reintegrate back home. Uh, so that is done. It should be released around November. Um, and I believe there's going to be a panel discussion and a conference discussion, a conversation at the International Leadership Conference uh, Association uh, in November in uh, in San Francisco. So we'll see how all that turns out, given how everything is going right now. Uh, I am also working on the second edition of this green book here, Sustainable. <laughs> sustainable, um, right. And I've yet to determine if we're going to call it sustainable or stream-banked entities. Uh, but it's a follow-up to that particular book, which focuses on uh, nonprofit financial sustainability. And so for those watching, you know, we know the importance of having sustainability baked into our strategies, uh, especially around revenue. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm working on expanding that particular work, uh, especially with some new experiences under my belt, some projects that I've been a part of, uh, projects I've seen successfully close out, some not so successful and brand new ones that are still coming online. So those are the projects I'm working on right now. Yeah, that, that's great. Looking forward to that uh, second edition. Just before we get into the, the heart of things, and today's title is uh, The Costs of Raising Money or How Much Should Fundraising Cost? So we're going to get into some detail with that, uh, which I'm looking forward to. But uh, I just wanted to um, ask, uh, you, you, you speak to a lot of leaders, uh, you um, engage with a lot of folks in the sector and you know, both around your, your work and your writing. What is the one question that people come to you with over and over again that you almost wish you had a placard or a, you know, like one of the old fashioned cassettes, cassettes, you could just press play and go, okay, listen to this because I know I'm going to get this question. Here's my more or less stock answer. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of perennial, if I had a dime or a penny or a dollar for every time someone asks this question, you know, you'd be on a beach somewhere with your feet up. So what, what's that? What's that one question, that one issue that you get all the time? So the question that I get a lot these days um, is how do I raise money, especially if I'm a newbie or if I'm looking to cross over from newbie status to kind of the mid-tier status, uh, you know, your $775,000 to three to $5 million a year. And how do I transition from 5 million to 10 million and so on? How does that happen? And so oftentimes I, I share with people the three secrets that are found on my website. If you go to elipatrick.com, uh, you scroll down just a little bit, you see the three secrets that I teach all my students and my clients around fundraising. And I've learned that these three secrets, which starts with number one, clear strategy matters, but it's the only the third fastest way to raise money. Uh, secret number two is uh, performance matters. And it's the second fastest way to raise money. And a lot of people are shocked by that second secret. 
But what I've learned over the years is that that second secret is kind of like that secret weapon you have to unlock money super, super fast, especially if you have access to multi-year funding uh, that uh, you've been awarded. It's not a guarantee that you'll get the remaining years. And so if you establish good performance metrics, good performance habits, you can unlock money faster than you can blink. But the fastest way and the third secret to raise money is obviously through relationships. And those three successive secrets used in some sort of um, uh, mixture, if you will, some greater than others in, in any given moment, I think speaks to answering the question over and over and over again, whether it's about sustainable, whether it's about earned income, whether it's about grants, fundraising, events, uh, individual donors, sponsorships, et cetera. One or a combination of these three secrets really is an answer to the question of how do I raise money? And that's the, it sounds again, like you are, um, as you, as you prefaced speaking to people who are, um, already getting started in one, in a particular way. So they may have been formulating their strategy. Maybe they don't have quite a track record with regard to results and, and performance. Um, but they still need to build up those relationships. So it's a long game. There's no instant lottery prize. Yeah. There, there, there is no quick answer. I will, I will tell you, um, <laughs> I, I'll share this. I think for a lot of people, especially for newbies who are trying to elevate as quick as possible, um, there is a pathway to do that. And that pathway is through partnerships and relationships. Uh, I won't go into detail about that. You will have to join my masterclass, which you should know before writing grants, um, you know, masterclass and mastermind group to kind of explore that in a much more substantive way. But for newbies who are jumping into the fray for the first time, or they've been around for a year or two and they're trying to get major money, I'm not talking about the $2,500 from Walmart, the $1,000 from your local church, $500 from Target. I'm talking about major money where we're talking about six-figure money. Partnerships is, a, is an excellent way to do that. Um, but ideally, no matter what you're doing, building a nonprofit, building a for-profit, building anything, it takes time and you're going to have to invest in all three of these secrets to make sure your nonprofit has a fighting chance of raising money. Uh, thank you. Really good uh, uh, parallel between nonprofits and, and for-profit. Uh, uh, so it also then makes me think that one of the standard questions is, and I wonder if you get this too, is should I start a nonprofit? And one, and one of the questions uh, I hear from people who are uh, Found, founding or thinking about founding a nonprofit, maybe they've, they've not quite got incorporated yet, is whether they really need to start a new organization. Uh, and the response is, well, they have so much passion about what it is they're trying to do. And, and, and I remind people that, it, you know, if they're going to be a, a party of one, then they're not going to be doing a lot of their passion. They're going to be running a new organization, which takes a lot of time and effort. Uh, what do you advise people to do in that? How do you help them determine whether they should, in fact, start a new organization or partner, as you said, with others, which people, for some reason, are uncomfortable doing? Yeah, I, you know, I think that uh, we need to acknowledge this truth, and that is uh, the nonprofit industry is the place where the most passionate people go to work. Like that is, I think, acknowledging that, I think, puts into context what the right answer is. And I think it depends, Kev, right? I think it depends on uh, one's ability to recognize that 
opening, creating, launching a nonprofit is legitimately launching a brand new business. Regardless of the rationale, regardless of whether they should partner and work with other folks, let's put that aside for a moment. You start a nonprofit, you are starting a business. It's no different from starting a t-shirt business, a hamburger business, or a shoe business, a car wash business, fill in a blank. Starting a nonprofit is nothing more than a particular business structure you've elected to use to start your business. If you feel that you can provide value to the industry, to the community, to the target customer, then go right ahead and start that business. But if you feel like this is something, there's something you're passionate about, there's something you want to at least give to support, you might want to explore a couple of ways. And as a, fa- and as a matter of fact, this past Sunday, I preached a sermon at my church about, uh, th- this was probably our fifth installment in response to the George Floyd incident where he lost his life tragically. And people are riding in the streets. and Look, I get it. I'm not that type of person, but I get it. But for people who want to do something else, I've given five options over the course of this five-part sermon series, but I closed out this sermon series talking about the role of social service organizations, nonprofits in, in, in our community to make a difference. And I gave the option of starting a business, starting a nonprofit business, but I also talked about the important role of people joining boards of, of boards of directors of nonprofits. You can volunteer your time there. You can serve as a traditional volunteer at a nonprofit. You can be a donor. You can go get a job at a nonprofit. You can sponsor elements of another nonprofit. There are different ways to get involved. And I think that the true answer, Kev, is for one to evaluate the, the motivation behind starting this business. Uh, and if they are fully committed to not only starting the business, but actually growing the business, putting in the work, because as you just mentioned, the more you deal with the administration, the more you're going to get away from the actual element of doing the passion driven work. Uh, so hopefully, you know, I know I didn't give a straight answer, but I gave several pathways to get involved that may be more attractive to others than just flat out starting a nonprofit. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I, I've, um, I know of a couple of instances where people have uh, directed their passion towards volunteering for a nonprofit that is in a similar space to the one they are thinking about. And, it's, uh, and they come back to me later and said, that sort of scratched the itch. <laughs> and, and I saw from the other side how much work it really was. And actually, I'm glad I could just donate my time fulfill that need for impact. And I didn't have to feel like I was carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders. Um, and I could focus entirely as a volunteer that in that capacity yeah, for yeah. that impact. And I think that's a, that's a, a wonderful contribution to our community. But, but, I, but, I, but I also think this is true too for established organizations. And you hit on, hit on this earlier that there's this fear of partnership. And I think a lot of it is because of people being territorial about what they think belongs to them, whether it's their, their comp, their contributions to the community, whether it's the, the community that's being served. I can't tell you how many times uh, I have this conversation with people. Uh, I tend to be a very um, giving, uh, willing partner, if you will, uh, in our space where I'm saying, hey, use what I have, take what I've created, take what we're doing, take what we're innovating, and just partner with this. Because for us, it makes sense to partner with you Uh, But there is a significant struggle for people to say, I'm willing to do that. And I think part of it is in our industry, the nonprofit industry, there is a shrinking uh, sandbox of resources people see. 
Uh, they see the attitude of funders who are saying, I need you guys to partner up or we're going to shrink available resources. And people are very territorial and they're trying to figure out how do I keep my organization going? How do I pay my bills? How do I pay the rent? How do I pay my staff? How do I pay for all the expenses associated with what we do and still provide services? And if that means not partnering with you so I can have a bigger pot of money, I would do that. What ends up happening and, and what I tend to see when people tend to be selfish in that way, they tend to isolate themselves and they limit the options that are that become available to them to truly sustain. When you can't partner, you lose opportunities that would be otherwise offered to you. So for example, you may be the creator of a t-shirt business, uh, but you end up selling all types of knickknacks in your store, shoes, belts, socks, pants, etc. But when you only ice, when you isolate yourself and saying, I gotta be the creator of it all, especially as a new business, a small business, a mid-sized business, you lose the opportunity of sourcing resources and product from other people that might do something better than you. And so we're focused on getting the majority of the revenue from this particular product. Why not sell a popular product, take a percentage and continue to grow your business? It's the same concept in the nonprofit world. Do what you do and get 100% of that, but it might be attractive to partner with other people and get a percentage of what they're doing. But the interesting perspective uh, in, in the sense that having that narrow focus of, uh, or, or reluctance to partner and focusing entirely on what it is that you do is, is, is really from the supply side or the push side, as I refer to it sometimes, uh, what the agency or the, or the nonprofit is actually doing rather than looking at the impact on the people they serve. And, and it's very rare that uh, vulnerable people, vulnerable communities can rely entirely on one nonprofit. They're getting services from lots and lots of people. And, and, and you know, frontline staff on the ground know everybody by first name basis who's working in other agencies and other, and other organizations. But the, the management of those organizations don't always see eye to eye or partner in, in, as productively as they could. And the people who lose out, of course, are those the communities that we're trying to serve. Yeah, certainly. Right. Okay. Uh, you mentioned that um, there's a, a dwindling pot, and we know that every time there's an economic downturn, the nonprofit sector uh, is the first to suffer and always the last to recover. So we we uh, we know, and if uh, anyone's listened to any of the twelve episodes in in series one of Nonprofit Problem Solver, this was a recurring theme about how we cope with uh, a a reducing pie and growing need uh, in. Um, in, in our sector. So if we move to the, the core question here, like the costs of raising money, how much does it cost to fundraise? Just walk me through, firstly, how we should think about it. What is, how should we understand the time and effort needed to raise money for a nonprofit? Yeah, it's no different from, uh, again, a for-profit business. And I keep coming back to that, Kev, because people... Um, there's a smaller percentage of people that consider launching nonprofits versus the percentage of people that desire to launch, launch a for-profit. People are more inclined to buy a franchise or start some other for-profit venture than they would consider a nonprofit because people consider nonprofit charity work, which it's not. Uh, people consider nonprofits as non-revenue generating businesses, which it's not. Uh, there are a lot of us that sustain our families and are living well because of the career choice that we've made. But when it comes to raising money, I think 
there needs to be an evaluation of, of what time is being invested, especially depending on where you are in the life cycle of your nonprofit. If you're in the very beginning, uh, and let's say it's you and maybe one other person, maybe two other people who decided to volunteer time because that's all you can afford to do. Uh, one person has to be out selling this nonprofit and fundraising. Now, the cost of that is associated with traditional expenses, gas, time, et cetera. And if this person is not uh, on salary, then those expenses aren't necessarily realized in a tangible way. Uh, but that's kind of how we look at it, especially when you look at a mid-sized to larger size nonprofit organization. You have your CEO, your C-suite people who are considered your administrative staff. And I think this gets to part of the issue what we're talking about. When you start to generate revenue from grants, what many nonprofits, smaller ones don't realize is that uh, the funders limit the amount of money that's allocated to administrative costs. Administrative costs typically is associated with your C-suite people. In addition to these C-suite people, there is a cutoff of money that can be spent on HR, quality assurance, IT, finance, etc. Those are key components of managing a sizable business of any type, let alone a nonprofit. What we typically, typically see is 10% or less allocated to grants. On average, you start to see three, four, five percent of that allocated to a grant. I bring this up to bring uh, make this point, Kev. When you have somebody who's on salary, a number of people who are on salary who are who are C-suite individuals, these are your senior executives. You got to figure out how to build them to a grant or some sort of revenue source coming in. And if you have a lot of grants that are restricted, meaning grant funds are only allowed for programmatic expenses. If your C-suite folks aren't charged or billed to those programs, then you got to figure out how do I close the gap with unrestricted dollars. Another unpopular thing that people don't realize is that unrestricted dollars really don't exist. With that being said, this creates a conundrum for any nonprofit to figure out how do we pay these bills. This creates a problem when you start to figure out fundraising costs because this person who may be billing $75,000, $100,000, $150,000 to your nonprofit is only partially covered by a particular program, and yet they're out in the street fundraising or partnering with folks. So I think when you start to calculate these costs, it does come down to who is doing the fundraising, what percentage of their time is spent fundraising versus the revenue they're able to bring in. Another thing that a lot of people don't consider, Kev, is it's not just the salary cost of that person. It's also inclusive of the overhead cost of that person the rent that they've cost the business, the internet that they spend, the cost of their computer, PC, laptop, tablet, cell phone, their overhead costs around 401k, retirement, vacation, healthcare costs. So that person who's charging you $150,000 may in fact actually cost your nonprofit $200,000 and more. So when they're spending 50% of their time fundraising, that means that person is that $100,000, half their salary, half their cost is really up in the air. You don't know if you're getting a return on investment. So that cost can be very, very high if you don't have skilled people raising money. But then it goes back to the three secrets I shared. Again, if you got a strategy, if you have performance, if you have relationships, that $100,000 multiplied times two or three of people raising money can bring in millions of dollars for your nonprofit. And then the cost compared to the revenue coming in is pretty insignificant compared to what they're just able to bring in as a group. 
Uh, interesting. So a lot there. Uh, I want to come back to one thing. It was almost like a throwaway comment there. We said there's no really uh, nothing, uh, no real thing is unrestricted funds. So I want to come back to that in a moment, <laughs> so that, uh, just to just to clarify uh, what that means. Um, but just peeling back to the notion of a small team where we where we started with a with maybe volunteers or or a founder and a single employee. How should that person? blend or, or, or separate rather their time between doing the, doing the genuine admin sort of in the business, doing some of the programming that the business is for, and then doing that fundraising piece. So like the, the trade-off between those or the opportunity cost, if you will. How, how do you help people think through that? It depends on one's skill and interest. Just as simple as that. There are some people who have no interest and no skill in fundraising and they want to do the programming stuff. And so they may hire a grant writer. They may hire me to help them think through a strategy that is ready, set, forget it. And they focus on a program. Conversely, you have people who just don't want to do programming for whatever reason, but they love the thrill and the rush of fundraising. So it just, it just depends on the skill of the person, what they're willing to do. What about the, um, what about the way they recruit uh, their, their, say, their first board? Yeah, I think a board can can play a role, uh, but it, it becomes it becomes challenging, right? Because especially if you're a newbie, recruiting your board can can be a little weird because the first board may be people who are very friendly to your passions and your heart's desire. These are people who are likely friends and family just so you can be in compliance. But then when you start to get serious about operating your nonprofit or t- making that transition to being uh, to raising money, real money for your nonprofit to do real things for your community, your board starts to take on a different turn, or at least it should. It should no longer be filled with people who are completely friendly to your, your vision, but it should be people who do believe in the vision you, you uh, have, but who are willing to challenge you, to push you, and who also bring to the table resources. Again, when we start to look at this third secret of partnerships is the fastest way to raise money, part of it does include who's on your board. Maybe they don't have the money. They might, right? They may bring to the table money from their organization, but they also may have the proper relationships in place to quickly make a referral between Kev and person A, Kev and person B. Listen, I'm on the board of this organization. I'm volunteering. We're doing great things. I think it'll be great if we can work together and figure out how to pursue this new opportunity together. So that can accelerate revenue and lower the cost as well. But again, the board member is a volunteer. Volunteers, while they are great to nonprofits, and this is a myth, people think that they can launch a nonprofit business off the back of volunteers and it will grow. That's not necessarily true. Not, volunteers typically are people that have jobs, they are typically people that have other commitments. They are typically people that are occupied with other things and cannot commit to your nonprofit in a way that a staff person would. This goes for your board as well. While your board may make the introduction and that didn't take them much time, the actual work of getting to know this person, between you, know, you and this person, building a unique individualized relationship, it takes time. Building trust, uh, building commitments, getting things off the ground, that takes time. So it's still an investment of time that can still be uh, cost prohibitive for a number of nonprofits if they don't have the right people in place. Right. So uh, time and, and skills and interests is what I'm hearing, and that, and that varies. And so part of the thinking, perhaps, in assembling your board is trying to get that, that mix. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and very few people are, are actually trained in making those 
asks, <laughs> uh, whether they're board members or, or, or executive directors, how would you uh, identify or specify the sorts of uh, or classify fundraising skills in that regard? Like what labels would you give to the skills? I mean, I hear about asking. Um, what other elements would you, would you consider? There's asking, I know there's a sort of introducing warm leads, if you will, you know, as you described, uh, making those relationship connections. What, 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 what skill sets are there in fundraising that you may or may not have? Yeah, so yesterday I did a podcast on this, uh, the five qualities of a good fundraiser, five leadership qualities of a good fundraiser. I'm going to try to go off memory, but I talked about vision. You got to have good vision, right? You got to have a perspective of the future that you're selling to people. You're, you're telling stories. Uh, but one of the things I, I closed out with in the podcast was talking about the ability to have, to offer various donors on ramps, right? You, you have to be a good guide to guide a donor from point A to point B. And point B is investing in your nonprofit. If you're not comfortable talking about your vision, telling your story, engaging funders in a unique way so that they can feel like you are responsive to uh, what they're looking to invest in, it's hard to guide people. It's hard to connect people. Uh, and this goes back to the, the type of person you described earlier, someone who thinks they want to start a nonprofit. Maybe it's a conversation with you if you're listening that they realize, no, I don't want to start a nonprofit, but I want to invest. I want to sponsor I want to be a donor of. And so if you're a fundraiser, it's it's your job to be a guide, a tour guide, to show this particular funder, just like any regular tour guide, here's how the locals behave and respond. This is what we do in our neck of the woods. This is how this industry responds. Here are the challenges. They, some of them are systemic. Some of them are new. These are the ways that we solve these issues. And I believe that we are the right organization to continue to solve those problems. And here are our results. We will love to continue to expand on our capacity. And we think we can expand our capacity with your support. If you don't have a vision and if you're not able to be a tour guide, it's going to be tough. It's going to be super, super tough uh, to get people on board to sponsor your idea. So that's even before you get to the position of, of asking. So Yeah, but, but I think it's a part of the ask because, and, and, and I think, the point you're also getting at is one of the um, skills that we lack in our industry is the, is the desire and the ability to simply ask for the money, ask for the sale. So part of me believes that a nonprofit fundraiser has to be really good at sales. And it's really a call to action. These, this is a term that's used in the sales word. What is the call to action at the end of your pitch, right? But again, your call to action can be super weird if you don't have a vision or if you don't have ability to guide people from where they are to where you want them to be. And by the time you make your ask, it can be super weird. But even when you've done successfully the, the process of telling your story, showing this vision and being a tour guide, the ask is key. One of the things I did say in the podcast, Kev, is you got to be super specific. And I don't know if it was a podcast or a class, but whatever. But you got to be super specific about what you want from this donor. And you got to be super specific about what you want them or how they can get on board, right? Every donor is not going to give the same. They're not going to be the same. They're not going to want the same things. So you can't have a stringent uh, a process or a stringent request that you have you got to be open-minded about what you want from this person, what they're willing to give, 
and give them that specific on-ramp when you are handling that particular ask. So when you say, Kev, can I have money? That's not necessarily what Kev wants to hear. Kev may be the type of investor, and, and notice I'm using this term investor a lot. Uh, this is another word of saying donor, yeah, I do the same. funder. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. it's a business term, and we got to get used to it, right? But Kev may be the type of person that specifically wants to donate to youth, but I've learned about Kev that he also wants to focus on uh, high school seniors who are struggling to cross over into finding their career pathway or college pathway and who have a huge digital divide from a particular community and a, who, are, have a, who has a high uh, violence rate, right, in the city. That's a very specific thing that Kev likes. And if, it's, if that's what he wants, it's, it does not behoove me to talk about any other youth that's not in high school or a high school senior. It doesn't make sense to talk about the youth on the south end of the city when Kev is specifically concerned about the north end. It doesn't make sense for me to talk about kids who are going to college, who have a job, when Kev really wants to focus on kids who are struggling. So my ask to Kev is, Kev, listen, we know that you have a super, uh, super huge passion. Uh, in this particular space with this particular type of client. Here's our history. Here's what we've been able to do. But here's our vision of where we think we're going. And we think your investment of purchasing, uh, let's say, um, new devices, new computers for these kids, or your investment of helping us get our community center, your investment of helping us cover 12 months of rent at this new facility will help us solve the problem you and I are interested in. That's a different type of ask than saying, Kev, can I have some money? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. This is yeah, not worlds fan. apart. Yeah, so you got to be very specific. And so, again, for the people watching, you know, here are quick, three quick tips. Be a visionary, be a good tour guide, but be very specific about what you want and be specific about how people can invest in your organization. That, that, that's great. Uh, just to circle back on that, with regard to, um, you mentioned storytelling and tour guide and having the on-ramp and being able to, to describe how people can get involved. And we often internalize those tasks as, these are things that I'm gonna do, this is how I'm going to tell the donor, this is how I'm gonna engage the donors, all the stuff that we're doing. But the critical piece there that you described was knowing the donors so you can make that specific call to action that's going to resonate with them. But you're not gonna be able to know that if, if your mouth's never shut, <laughs> if, you're, if you're just pushing information towards the donor. So um, how do you listen for that? How, where do you get that information? How do you learn about donors in that way? So here's, here's a little known secret that a lot of people don't realize, especially when they're new to the nonprofit space. Typically, there are cluster groups, learning groups that nonprofits are a part of. Uh, these things are rarely posted in a public forum. They're never posted on anybody's website. You may find it on social media and keyword may. The only way to find out about these things is to literally ask around. Where are the cluster groups of nonprofits that talk about youth or homelessness or an employment or, or domestic violence, right? Those groups cluster and they tend to have extensive email chains that talk about when the next meeting is going to take place. At these cluster groups are conversations that are happening where people not only talk about best practices within that particular focus of the nonprofit, but they also talk about funders. And in many cases, you might find a funder 
at the table. The reason why funders are at the table is because they want to be around circles of conversations where they're hearing the experts talk about how to solve a problem. When they hear these experts, i.e. you, the person who's listening to this particular podcast, class, whatever this is gonna be, when they hear you talk, you give the funder ideas on how to frame their next RFP. And oftentimes, a funder is going to talk, they're going to engage, they're going to ask questions. This is how you get to know what the funder is thinking. You're not gonna find that out in the middle of a one-on-one, it's too late. If you haven't right. done your homework, it's, it's, it's too late. Just, just quit, just, you're not gonna get it. But if you're around the funders that are funding your work, you're hearing their conversations, you're hearing their questions, you're attending networking events, conferences, uh, you're at board meetings, they are at, and they are active in those board meetings, you will get all the intel you need about that funder, what they like, what they don't like, what they believe in. And here's my other secret. It's kind of hard to do this with, with the pandemic going on, but one of my favorite things to do, and, and listen, for all those who are listening, please don't tell anybody the secret. I love to schedule coffee dates with funders. I love to schedule coffee dates with partners. Because one, coffee's a cheap date. It's during the daytime. People get coffee all times during the day, but it allows one-on-one time so I can get to know this person. I'm not making an ask. I'm not pitching. I'm not requesting anything. It's just us going to get some coffee. So that's it's how you It's a relationship mind building. Funder. Relationship building. Right. So it's, again, another parallel with the for-profit world. Uh, if, if you're uh, familiar at all with uh, startups and entrepreneurship, there are investors who are interested in that sort of thing, and you have to know which uh, investors have what appetite for risk, what industries they're looking at, are they interested in software, are they interested in bricks and mortar, and so on and so forth. And, and, and basically, this nonprofit, uh, human problem-solving type of investment is, is very same, is very similar. Very much similar. Right. Okay. So just uh, for clarifications, what is, um, what is the name of the podcast and your, and your website, just so we can make sure everybody knows? Thank you for asking that question. The name of the podcast is, drum roll please, mm-hmm. the Dr. William Clark Podcast. Oh, right. <laughs> the okay. Podcast. The Dr. William Clark Podcast. Yeah, we talk about all things nonprofit, fundraising, and leadership. The Dr. William Clark Podcast, you can find it on any and all platforms. Uh, you can find me uh, at elipatrick.com my six figure funding.com or nonprofit fundraising strategies or fund nonprofit funding strategies.com. They all lead to the same place. But again, it's elipatrick.com, my six figure funding.com and nonprofit funding strategies.com. Okay. I think I've got those in the in in yes. the in the chat. Right. Excellent. Okay. Uh, let's go back to that, um, and I hope it wasn't a throwaway comment, <laughs> this idea that there's no such thing as unrestricted uh, donations, uh, because the, um, I want to I break down some of this learning uh, and some of the secrets that you're sharing by funding type, because there are clearly some distinctions between uh, grants, and you mentioned our RFPs as a formal process, and, and understanding that sort of long tail uh, approach that that program managers from foundations have. There's corporate gifts. There's individual donors, uh, and so on. And they all take different approaches and different strategies. Um, but 
what were you what were you saying or what do you mean by the idea that there's no such thing as unrestricted uh, unrestricted cash or unrestricted donations? Yeah, so let's define it really quick. There, there are two types of funding, restricted and unrestricted. Restricted funding is funding that is designated for specific purposes by the donor. You cannot use it for purposes outside of what they say you can use it for. Unrestricted means you can use it for whatever. Newbies tend to ask the question, where can I get startup funds? Uh, that is super rare. That's what you call unrestricted dollars. There are some dollars out there, but from my experience, those dollars exist for mature organizations that are trying to pilot something new. They're trying mm-hmm. to expand capacity to do something new, and they've already established their ability to raise restricted dollars. Now, there. Sorry, just is, to cut in, cut in you, to, cut mm-hmm. in, cut across you. There's just a, and what if not only just mature organizations, but I often find that it's the foundations who reach out to those mature organizations and say. We're interested in this problem. We've seen some research in another city. We wanted to bring it here. Would you be interested if we fund to start up and experiment this program and do a test pilot with you? It's yes. almost by in, it's not it's by invitation, not. Yes. Sorry. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to, no, to mention you're that right. you often don't even even the mature organizations. Uh, get knocked back when they when they go to ask for this, but they are often asked by funders because there's an existing structure and a trust and so on. There, that is, I'm glad you inserted that. Invitation only is, a other, is another secret that a lot of people aren't aware of. And there's no way to control the invitation. I mean, there are some cases where you can kind of politic your way around it, but it's, it's more what you described and it's invitation only. And so unrestricted dollars are rare. And so that means that if the bulk of money that exists is restricted, then you as the founder, the executive director, CEO of your nonprofit, you have to become super creative about how you bill your staff, your administrative staff and yourself to a restricted budget. I have a class on my Patrick, uh, on my website, elipatrick.com, which is entitled how to create a nonprofit budget to pay you to. And I created a class initially to teach people how to pay themselves a salary within their nonprofits. But deep in that class, I explore and I go through the process of how to bill all your staff across your grants. So if you're interested in that, go check that out. Go to elipatrick.com. But to the other point, uh, Kev, this is why I wrote my book, Sustainable, that green book over my shoulder, if I can point correctly to it. (laughs) Because nonprofits, ministries, churches, community groups, they're doing the good work we all believe in. And there are times that foundations don't agree or don't align with or, or what you do is not a funding priority. The question becomes, how do you create unrestricted dollars so you can do what your heart passion is calling you to do? The way you do that is to become sustainable. And this book talks about the steps, strategies, and, and, and what you have to do to create earned income for your organization. That is the key. That is the cheat code. That is, uh, I don't know what other analogy I can throw in here, but if you're trying to create unrestricted dollars to be free and to do whatever you believe is necessary for your community, you have to become sustainable, which is you have to start to earn money. 
I, I, I don't offer many ideas in this book, but in the second iteration, I, I am thinking about offering several case studies, but I'll, I'll share this one uh, with you guys, the nonprofit that I'm a part of. Uh, we recently got a $100,000 grant to launch a staffing agency, which is exciting. Um, there are there are a lot of things I can say about that, but I think if you want to learn more about that, there are future podcasts that are coming out. But there, there are a couple of things I want to share with folks when it comes to starting a business. And this is not our first business, by, by, by the way. And I talk about in the book, when you start a nonprofit business, an earned income venture for your nonprofit, uh, it has to be something that is deeply aligned with the core competency of your nonprofit. Dr. Jer Boshi uh, wrote a book, uh, and I can't remember the name of it, but it's a little it's a little blue book. If you Google his name, Dr. Jer Boshi, it's a little blue book. I'm looking right at it. It has uh, birds on a cover. If you <laughs> how, how do you spell look, his name? Sorry, uh, J E R R, and I think it's B O U S C H E. Dr. Jer Boshi. Okay. It's a blue book. Check it out. You got to read it. He talks about the mentality you need to earn revenue for your nonprofit. And the, the core of his book addresses the fact that people start businesses that are not aligned with what people are good at. So, for example, nonprofits are notorious for doing cupcake sales, car washes, chicken dinners, galas, and they are not good at those businesses. You were asking me earlier, what's the cost of raising uh, of fundraising? Uh, one of the biggest ways to waste money is to do these event type things and don't realize you're losing money. One of my favorite podcasts, if you can find it on my Facebook page, is called Chicken Dinners. Literally, go to Facebook, Google my name, Dr. William Clark, type in Chicken Dinners. I go on an epic 38-minute rant about why it's a bad <laughs> idea. But before I go on my rant, I talk about Dr. Boshi's book, his principles, and then I walk through why doing chicken dinners, cupcake sales, a car wash is a bad idea. You are losing way more money than you think and it's much more smarter to get people to invest in your nonprofit instead of having them buy a cupcake from you. So if you want to create unrestricted dollars and be free, do the things that you believe are important for your community, you got to create an earned business, an earned income business that's aligned with your nonprofit. And I'll close with this, Kev. So back to the staffing agency, some may be asking, well, how is that relevant to the nonprofit you're at? Well, we are a workforce development agency. We develop people. We help people develop skills to get to work. We help people find work, sustain work. We've been doing the work of a staffing agency before we started the launch staffing agency. So this revenue generating business is aligned with what our core mission and core skill is. It's just that we're going to charge a fee for it now. That's the key difference. If there's something in your program that you're really good at, think about how you can monetize it in the open market, the charge a fee. Right. So not, not t-shirt sales and cupcake sales and, and so on. No, and please and, please. <laughs> and please in don't. charging a fee, are you, uh, talk me through this, the thinking, uh, and maybe it's not so much of an issue, but whether you have a, uh, a for-profit subsidiary, like a trading company within your nonprofit, or, you know, how, how do you manage the accounting? Or is that really just a case-by-case basis? Go get legal advice. And <laughs> so I have very little advice on this, but here's my, here is my advice. Number one, this is why I opened up with telling people launching a nonprofit is a business. Please do not take anything uh, that I say as, as uh, sound advice without talking to your attorney, 
or your accountant. I am neither one of those people. <laughs> so that is my best advice. However, uh, there are various models that are available to nonprofits. You can have this nonprofit as a part of your organization as long as it doesn't cross the 50% threshold or revenue generated. Again, look at your local state laws to make sure that is accurate. If it's not accurate, contact the professional. There are other nonprofits that start subsidiary LLCs. That is an option. There are nonprofits that are on the board or who are stockholders of other businesses. That is an option. Uh, there are nonprofits that have partnerships that just receive a fee or partnership fee uh, because of their uh, branding relationship. That is an option. At the end of the day, while I can talk about that, I strongly recommend you do your research, but also talk to a professional to help you structure it correctly. And and then and there and again, there's costs associated with with all of those. There's always an investment up front. This is a long game. We're not buying yes. lottery tickets. <laughs> no. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. So um, uh, there the. Um, the, the last thing I, I wanted to sort of uh, pull out and, and list from you, are there, are there things that you would say that these are a list of must-dos or a list of must-not-dos? They not be long lists, but when, you're, when you sort of send your students off into the world and <laughs> hope they do good things, so make sure you do these things, make sure you don't do these things, and you know, that'll get you most of the way there. Now, what's the context of that? Is it around fundraising, just not profit? Yeah, fun, yeah fundraising, in terms of fundraising, yeah. But you, um, can, you can expand it if you want, because while, you, while we have you with us, you know, we want to pull as much out of your brain as possible, as long as it's, you know, practical and tactical, can fits under nonprofit problem solver, you know, we're, we're game. Yeah, I mean, I, I would tell people, do follow my three secrets. Uh, have a strategy, uh, make sure you perform, you have the capacity to perform, and also build relationships. That, that is key. Uh, I also would tell people that they got to be able to tell their story. Um, I would tell folks to look at, and I, and I, I might get this wrong, but um, look up the Goodman Group out of California. And I believe that's their name, uh, the Goodman Group. They help nonprofits tell stories effectively. Um, he, this gentleman teaches the, what I think is a very simplistic way to do this. So you got, got to be able to tell your story. But I think the other thing too, and this is another do, uh, make sure you capture results. Make sure you're capturing the data. Without it, you can't prove uh, that, you're, that you're doing uh, the work that you claim you're doing. Uh, but here are my don'ts. Please do not start a nonprofit if you're not really willing to treat it like a true business. Okay. Do not, this is my second one, treat your nonprofit like a charity. Your nonprofit is not a charity. It is not a secondhand hand-me-down operation that people can just throw pennies at or they can give their dirty clothes to and you'll take care of it and give it to the homeless. No, you run a, you run a business, you, you run an operation. Uh, do not despise small beginnings, right? The, the early stages matter. If you have to hustle and work your regular job and start your nonprofit as well, make it happen. But it's all about the process. It's all about the end game. But Kev, this is no different from starting any other business. Hmm. You got you to gotta be in it. You got to invest your time. You got to put your work in, make it happen. And if I can just give one little secret that I've been sharing online often um, a lot the past couple of weeks, uh, even if you're brand new and you can't get your hands on money, one recommendation I've been giving to a lot of newbies is to consider tithing to their nonprofit. Begin getting revenue in there because of your own giving and invite five people to join you on a tithing journey for six months. 
just so you can have some funds in the, in the account so you can show that I can raise money. It's that simple. Ask yourself, can you afford to tithe, which is 10% of your paycheck every two weeks, every week, every month to your nonprofit and ask five friends and family to do the same. Tell them your story. Tell them what you're trying to do. And just say, just join me for six months. Wow. That's a, that's a really good uh, pilot, if you will. If, that, if you can pull that off, then um, that's probably bigger than a small beginning, isn't it? It's, it says a lot about you if you're able to do it. Because I think it's, it's a safe way to test yourself, get over your fears. Um, and it's also, once you realize what it took for you to do that, do it again six months later. Maybe this time you put together a presentation. Maybe this time, once Corona dies down, you have a tea party at your house and invite 10 people to join you for six months, all while you're still tithing to your organization. And slowly but surely, you're gathering resources. So let me just, I, this is in public square, so I'll share the secret too. Remember, my second secret is about performance. Mm-hmm. You're too new, likely, if you're doing this tithing strategy to have performance. So here, here's a secret for those watching. Don't tell anybody if you hear the secret, guys. The tithing is a strategy for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, it brings revenue in. But with your tithing, you now have to decide what we're going to do with the revenue. Okay? Now, if you have a board, your board can opt to pay you a stipend, which I recommend you do, because it trains your board to pay staff. It also shows encouragement to you that your efforts will not go unrecognized. If not a stipend, then they recommend that they pay you mileage for your travel, whatever the case may be. Get yourself on a small stipend. But the second thing, which is probably more powerful, is tied to my second secret. The reason why you want to do this hiding is so you can build capacity of performance. What does that mean? What does it look like? I can't serve but two people at a time. I can only serve one person at a time. Step aside for a second. Let's put that aside for a second. If you are raising money through tithing from yourself and your friends and your partners, you can use those funds and be a donor, a partner, or investor in another nonprofit who's obviously much bigger than you, much more established than you, much uh, has a greater capacity than you. And you can support specific elements of their program. The reason why you want to do that is because their success is your success. Now, you may say, well, Dr. Clark, I only, you know, was able to give a thousand dollars in the own, you know, to a youth program and this is a sports youth program. And I was only able to, you know, purchase a bag of footballs for that youth program. And it doesn't mean anything. No, 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 no. You missed the point. You don't know that that larger organization needed to buy those footballs, number one, and they didn't have extra money on hand to do it. You came in and saved the day. Because of you buying footballs, they were able to have practice and games for four months. They kept, for the sake of arguments, Kev, 30 kids off the street. They mm-hmm. were able to maintain their after-school mentoring program. They were able to help these kids graduate from eighth grade and get into high school, all because you supplied the footballs. When you look at your $1,000 investment into that partnership, their success with those 30 kids and their KPIs now become your success. I, I liken it to the success of your children is partly your success. You provide food, clothing, and shelter, but your kids may grow up and become whatever type of professional they are, they become successful. And while you may not have trained them to become what they are, you invested in their well-being. 
Their success is your success. And if you're able to log the results of your partnership, you are now logging results of performance and showing funders that you have a pathway to deliver on results. So I love that. I think that's, that's a, a genius strategy. With tithing, you get uh, some income coming in on a regular basis, but you've modeled and structured in a, in a micro startup way the idea of bringing in money in a routine way. And then you then have a responsibility from a board perspective as a fiduciary responsibility to expend those funds in one way or another. And that example of working with a partner organization uh, exactly models what we're asking donors to do as investors. And you're actually just doing it in, in, in your own right as the nonprofit. I think that's a, that's a genius strategy. I, I love that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah. So let's, let's close out then with um, just a reminder of where everybody can find you. Correct me if I'm wrong. You've got the Dr. William Clark podcast available everywhere. So when you download Nonprofit Problem Solver, make sure you also download <laughs> Dr. William Clark podcast or vice versa. I think we, you'll agree with me. We're flexible about which order people listen to them. <laughs> We've got yeah. elipatrick.com. Uh, and is that E-L-I Patrick or E-L-Y? E-L-I. E-L-I-Patrick.com. And then we got nonprofitfundingstrategies.com, my sixfigurefunding.com, a little green book called Sustainable, a book by Dr. Jess Bush we want to look at. And you can also be found on uh, Facebook if you search for Dr. William Clark and chicken dinners, you will be entertained by a no less than 38-minute rant. Is that correct? (laughs) Correct. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for spending the last hour with us. We've had a fantastic conversation. Uh, I'm sure you and I have, uh, have uh, many of contacts going forward, and I look forward to all of them. Thank you for joining thanks us. Thanks for having me. Thanks and for, thanks for me. kicking off the summer series of the Nonprofit Problem Solver. Uh, join us next week. I've got Ria Wong, uh, we, who's also got a podcast, The Nonprofit Lowdown. You want to check her out. And we'll also be talking about fundraising. So I will see you then. Thanks, Dr. Clark. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast. Special thanks to my guest, Dr. William Clark, who you can find online at nonprofitfundingstrategies.teachable.com and on his own Dr. William Clark Podcast. This episode was produced by Glenn Munoz at PodPro Audio. You can join future conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. You're also invited to join a private Facebook group, Social Impact Practitioner, where every day we go deep into the practical and tactical work to accelerate your impact. Because good causes deserve better results.